We're in Daniel 6 tonight, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And uh, I apologize in advance for how close my name is to the name of the Medo-Persian king in this text. I didn't have any choice in that. It's my mom's thing, so you can take it up with her. Uh, I am going home tonight, so what I learned a couple years ago, uh, I was teaching in Ponderosa a few years ago, and, uh, and my wife looked at me, I got done on Friday night, and she's like, you know, we could leave right now. And probably be home by 1 o'clock. There's no traffic. Like, we just blaze through and be home in like four hours. And I was like, let's go. We load up the car and left. So I, that's kind of been my practice is when I get done, I leave. Because then I have all day tomorrow to hang with my fam. So I will be out of here. If you're looking for me, you'll have to email me. Uh, if you want, ever wanted to reach me for any reason, you can reach me at darren.mcwaters at fullertonfree.com or Fullerton Free Church. If, just click on my head on the website. That's fine. So... Daniel 6, uh, remember at the end of Daniel 5, uh, Belshazzar had received the information that he was going to be overthrown because he had not remembered the lessons that his father had learned. And so God had handed over the kingdom of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians. And it says that very night he lost his life and he, uh, he lost the kingdom. And then a guy named Darius, who it tells us in the end of 5, was about 62. I think that's a really interesting detail. The end of 5, it tells us Darius was about 62. So, like, not specifically 62, but about 62. I don't, that just seems strangely vague. But um, now we get to Daniel chapter 6, and Darius is the king, and there is, uh, there's been a little bit of time that has transpired, but let's just read the way this goes. I, I'll say this as we dive into 6. Daniel 6 is like, come on, you know, maybe one of the top 10 most famous passages in all the Bible. It's like a famous story. Daniel and the lion's dens on every coloring book and every flannel graph. So once again, like I said earlier in the week, when we're talking about Daniel 3 with the, the, the fiery furnace, you, you do have to really, uh, you really have to discipline your heart to come to a text like this with fresh eyes because the, the temptation will be like, oh yeah, I already know this story. Like I've seen this a million times. So try and come to it fresh and allow the fact that you're not the same follower of Jesus today that you were yesterday or maybe the last time you read Daniel 6, that we're all in, on a journey and we're being transformed, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And so every time we open God's Word, we're in a different place than we were the last time we opened it. And because of that different place in our own progression, God speaks new things to us out of the same text. It's one of the beauties of His Word. So Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What we see here in the beginning of Daniel 6 is that there is some jealousy and there is, um, there is some opposition to the authority and the, and the leadership of Daniel. He's been moved into this position of authority and these guys are after him. Now, one of the things I want you to see uh, as we begin is that this isn't, this isn't Daniel being opposed because of his faith. Um, this is not persecution because of his faith. Uh, this is persecution because of jealousy with regard to his responsibility, right? He's got, he's got a, a role of authority and power because he's a man of an excellent spirit. But, but that role and authority is a byproduct of his faith. And it really, his faith is not what the people are mad about. So the only reason I point this out is that sometimes in 2022, in the world in which we live, 
we can get a little bit confused about what is persecution and what isn't, right? We like to throw the word persecution around. It, can, it is possible as Christians to sometimes feel like everyone's out to get us because we're Christians. Now, I'm not saying it isn't true that sometimes they're out to get us because we're Christians, but sometimes they're out to get us because they hate us for other reasons, right? They hate us for other things. Um, there are other reasons why we might be the target of people's frustration or anger or whatever. And the only thing I may be advocating for as we read Daniel 6 is to say, I think our approach is the same no matter how the opposition is coming, but I also think we want to be really careful before we claim persecution for ourselves because we have brothers and sisters who are truly and rightly being persecuted around the world, and we don't want to diminish what actual persecution looks like by calling you know, the fact that our neighbor yells at us sometimes for making noise on our way to church persecution. That might, might not exactly be the same thing, right? So there are these guys here who are plotting against Daniel because he's doing the right thing. And that can be frustrating. It can be frustrating when you get in trouble and you don't really know what you've done wrong. You don't really know what the problem is. All you've been trying to do is, is be faithful. That's very difficult. So uh, some of you maybe heard me tell the story before, but uh, when I was five, I came home from kindergarten one day, and uh, my mom was kind of doing the typical thing where she's like, hey, how was kindergarten? And I was like, oh, it was good. You know, we... Uh, you know, we said the Pledge of Allegiance, and then we had story time, and then we did a craft, and then we got to go outside, and we came back in, and we had a nap, and then we had lunch, and then we got to go outside again, and then we did another craft, and then the teacher slapped me, and then we heard another story, and then my mom's like, wait, hold on, what? And I was like, uh, we had two crafts today, I don't know. And she's like, no, did you say the teacher slapped you? And I was like, oh yeah, the, after the craft, the teacher slapped me, it hurt, you know. And she's like, w w Why? And I said, well, after the craft, all the kids in the class got a different assignment. Like, they had to do a different job. And my job was to put away the vacuum cleaner. And I couldn't. The vacuum cleaner was broken, and so she slapped me. And my mom's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, tell me, tell me the whole story. So I said, okay. Like, we did this craft, and then the vacuum cleaner, it wouldn't get put away. I couldn't put it away. And what, what we came to realize that I told her the story, in my house, we had uh, what was called a canister vacuum. It's now like a relic. You might have one, but it's unlikely. It's like a box with wheels and a hose on it. And the cool thing about a canister vac is that when you pull on the, the power cable, it has a spool, self-winding spool. So you just give it a little tug. You go, ding, ding, and it goes, and it sucks up the cable like the, like the spaghetti in Lady and the Tramp, right? Right back in. And, uh, but if you have an upright vacuum, which is the one we had at my school, my, my kindergarten, uh, you, you can't pull on the cable and have it go back in. You have to, it has a hook at the top and a hook at the bottom, and you've got to wind it around, right? You've all seen that. I'd never seen that because in my house we only had the canister vac. So my job was to put away the vacuum cleaner, and, uh, and so I went over to the vacuum cleaner, and I gave it a tug. Dunk, dunk, and nothing happened. So I stood there, and uh, the teacher comes over a few minutes later, and she goes, why haven't you put away the vacuum? And I said, well, it's broken. And she goes, it isn't broken. We just used it to vacuum the floor. Now, now put away the vacuum, okay, please, and don't be difficult. And I'm like, all right. So she walks off, and I go, dink, dink, nothing happens. Dink, dink, nothing happens. I'm just like yanking on this thing. Nothing's happening. She comes back. She's like, why haven't you put that vacuum away? And I said, well, I, I told you it's bro something's wrong with it. It won't, it won't get put away. I can't put it away. It's broken. And she's like, Darren, it isn't broken, and I already told you once it's not broken, and I don't like your attitude, and I'm not going to take any more back talk from you. Put the vacuum away. And she walks away. So I kept trying, and to no avail, I cannot put the vacuum away. And she comes back, and she's like, why haven't you put the vacuum away? And I was like, I told you, it's broken. And she slapped me. And uh, so I was like, mm, and then she just did it. And I was like, oh, that's how that works. Um, so all that to say, I told my mom that story, and I thought, like, that was kind of the end of it until the next day at kindergarten. And the next day at kindergarten, we went in. I did the Pledge of Allegiance, just like the normal thing. And as we're sitting down for the story time, there's a... Um, 
there's a knock on the door, which is exciting because for all of us who watch Mr. Rogers, you know, every time there's a knock on the door, it's going to be like an honored guest, maybe the male, who knows. And so um, my teacher goes to the door, and you guys are going to believe this, uh, it's my mom. She's come to my kindergarten, and not only is my mom at my kindergarten, but she's carrying our vacuum cleaner from home. She brought our chemistry back. So my friends are all like, is your mom going to vacuum the school? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What's going on? Let's see. You know, so my mom doesn't say anything. She pushes past the teacher. She walks in. She walks over to the table, the desk uh, where, where my teacher used to sit. And she sat the canister back on that. Teacher's on the other side. We're all just kind of watching. And really slowly, without saying anything, but like constant eye contact, my mom starts to pull the cable out of our canister vac from our house. And she pulls it all the way out without saying anything. And then she just reaches out real tender-like. And she goes, ding, ding. And he goes, right back in. And then she goes, boom. And she slapped my kindergarten teacher across the face. And all of us were like, yeah! It was like the end of Hoosiers, right? We're all like celebrating. And my mom picks up the, the canister vac and she walks out. And that was the end. Like that was the whole thing. Now, of course... That was like, what, 1979 or something. So there was no litigation. There was no, I don't even think there was any follow-up. I think the teacher was like, we're even or whatever, right? It was just kind of done. Today, uh, that kind of thing doesn't play. And what I'm not advocating for is the slapping of uh, educators. I don't think that's a good idea. But what I am saying is that even as a kid, I remember the feeling of having someone like, advocate for me like come to my rescue like what a cool feeling to have my mom come and defend me because I got in trouble and I couldn't understand what I got in trouble for I was completely in the dark as to like I was trying to do the right thing and I was doing the thing I thought I was supposed to do and I and I got busted for it in Daniel's case in Daniel chapter 6 here's a guy who's just trying to do the thing that he thinks is right he's trying to lead he's trying to serve he's trying to govern he's trying to be an ambassador of the kingdom of Yahweh uh and yet, he's, he's got himself in some trouble here. It says in verse 6, These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they, they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. It's interesting, when we think about Daniel 6, we mostly think about those last like two verses, right? We think about just the, kind of that last section, which is Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, and then God shut the mouths of the lions, and he was safe. When you're a child, that's kind of the most uh, it, like adventurous part of the story, exciting part of the story. But for us, thinking about what it looks like to be an ambassador in our individual spheres of influence and in the different cities and environments in which we live, which has been our focus all week, what does it look like to be an ambassador in a place that couldn't give a lick about our faith or about our God, the, the best part of this story is not the thing about the lions, right? The thing about the lions is cool, but, but it kind of, it's sort of like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It kind of doesn't matter what happens in the lions then for us. We look at it, and there's all kinds of things for us to be inspired by and challenged by that happen way before the thing with the lions, right? So I just want to look at four key things that I see in the life of Daniel that I think are instructive and convicting and challenging for me when I think about my interaction with people who don't necessarily hold the same faith or the same ideals or the same, the same love of Christ that I do. The first thing I see in the midst of this uh, is that Daniel is a man of a different spirit, right? It says clearly at the beginning that Daniel is elevated from the, from the get-go, but then Daniel became distinguished, verse 3, became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. There is a sense here in which Daniel is moving into a place of influence. He's, he's being given power and authority, jurisdiction over other people and, and over the other leaders even. But it isn't because he went chasing after that. It's because he's a man who, who lives a different life. He's, he's a man of an excellent spirit or a distinguished spirit, the Bible tells us. There's a distinguished otherness to him. And so for our purposes tonight, I just want to talk about how rare it is in our world today when we live the way Jesus lives, right? When we live like Jesus does, it looks peculiar. It looks strange. When we love the way Jesus loves, it looks peculiar and strange. I think a lot of times what ends up happening for us is we end up, uh, and I talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning, but there can be a tendency to either just like, you know, win in Rome, kind of blend in with the culture, we just try and, just try and fit, or on the other hand, we find ourselves in constant opposition. So what's strange is that we don't even think about the idea of just living a life of love and joy and peace and holiness and compassion and kindness and just having an excellent spirit, right? When we think about what manifesting the spirit of God looks like, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms what the fruit of the spirit is. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, 
envying one another. I, I, I love this passage in Galatians because it not only says, like, live in a way that, that, that the Spirit of God produces fruit in your life. So I think a lot of times we can feel the pressure to just sort of, uh, like, manifest fruit. Like, I just got to try to be loving and peaceful and patient and kind. And I've equated that before with the idea of, like, duct taping fruit onto your tree, right? The problem with duct taping fruit onto a tree is that it didn't grow there. And so it takes about 24 hours until it starts to look brown and shriveled and gross and it gets bugs and whatever. And so if you're duct taping fruit onto your branches, if you're just like forcing uh, joy and peace and kindness and self-control and gentleness, if you're just trying to like jam those things into your life, you're constantly having to replace them. And what that looks like is a constant boasting about oneself, right? Hey, did you hear about the missions trip I went on? Hey, did you hear about how much my, my wife and I gave to the new building campaign? Hey, did you hear about, th- we didn't even eat on Thanksgiving. We just had beans and rice or whatever. Like we do this thing where we're constantly having to go, look at my fruit, look at my fruit. Because we know that that fruit didn't grow there. And therefore, it's going to be rotten in a couple of days. What, what Galatians is talking about and what Jesus talks about in John 15 is that if we abide in him, fruit is the actual byproduct, right? Fruit's not something you do. Fruit's a thing that, that God does in and through you. So the call for us is to abide in Christ, to abide in Christ, and then the fruit produces love and joy and, and peace and patience and all these things. And I will tell you, and, and this comes back to the point I was making a second ago, I, unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians who should be ambassadors of Christ, end up defining themselves almost exclusively in terms of what they're against, right? Like, we just want to make sure everybody knows that we don't believe in this, and we don't believe in that, and we, do, we think this is an abomination, and this is unholy, and this is wrong. And it's not that we can't be standing up against things that are wrong, but in all honesty, like, that isn't the way to build a bridge with people uh, who, who are sometimes lost in the darkness and in sin. If Daniel spent all of his time talking about all of the things that were rotten in Babylon, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to have the kind of influence in Babylon that he has. What Daniel does instead is he just lives a life with an excellent and distinguished otherness, a difference. And I will tell you that nothing looks weirder in 2022 than love and joy and peace and patience. You, you want to look like a Jesus freak in today's environment? Just be kind, right? Just, just have a civil conversation with somebody that you disagree with across a coffee table. That doesn't happen anymore. We're done with it. If, if all you do is define yourself by what you're opposed to, uh, you just look like everybody else and they will immediately dismiss you. Your neighbors will immediately dismiss you. You'll never have an opportunity to point like John the Baptist towards Jesus. But if you will abide in Christ and allow his spirit to produce fruit in your life, that stuff looks super weird. It won't be very long. If you live a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, it will not be very long before somebody will be like, what's the deal with you? Like, are you, like, do you have a handler or something? Are you like a special person? Like, what's the thing with you? Because why are you so nice? Why are you so different, right? There is a, a distinct otherness. Uh, I've written here, there's an excellent spirit. I also put a note in my notes here to say my grandmother, who my kids called Mimi, she went to be with Jesus last year, but she was from Oklahoma. And if you're from Oklahoma, uh, there is literally nothing you can do to not seem like you're from Oklahoma, right? Like, have you met people from Oklahoma? You just know immediately. You just meet, o- you meet Okies and you're like, oh, I know exactly where you're from. Like, this is, my grandmother, just, there was a distinct otherness about her that had everything to do with where she was from, right? She was, she lived in Albuquerque the whole time I knew her. My entire life, she lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but she was always from Oklahoma, right? There's something beautiful about, about having 
the essence of the Spirit of God that distinguishes us as being people from the kingdom of God, right? There is an excellent spirit in Daniel that, that accounts for his promotion, that accounts for his influence, and that in some ways ultimately accounts uh, for their jealousy because he is, he, is, he is elevated because of that. Not only do I want you to see in the text the excellent spirit of Daniel, but, but I also want you to see this. Look at this, 11, 4, and 5, what happens. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was, or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. I love this, right? I love this. And here, here's the way I've, I've highlighted this. I, the first point I had tonight was that he was a man of excellent spirit. The second thing I want you to see is a man of impeccable standing. Impeccable standing. And it's so cool that his enemies are trying to find a way to sabotage him, right? They're trying to find a way to pull the rug out from underneath his authority and his influence. They want his job for themselves. And so they start to plot, I don't know if they hire a PI or whatever, but they start to try and dig up some dirt on him, and they literally can't find anything. They can't find anything to accuse him of because he's living this life of impeccable standing so that they finally reason together and go, the only thing we're going to be able to pin on him is that he's faithful to his God. Well, let me just ask you a question. How awesome would it be if the only thing that your coworkers or neighbors could pin on you was faithfulness? The problem for many of us is that long before we ever get to have a conversation with someone about the merits of our theology or the merits of our apologetics, long before we ever get to sit across the table and, and argue with someone about the deity of Christ, or have a conversation with them about the resurrection, or about the, the, the nature of human life, or long before we ever get to have a conversation about any of these vital things that we believe and we could articulate, people have already dismissed us. They don't want to have a conversation with us, not because of our theology, but because of the life we live the rest of the time, right? What they're looking for is a way to dismiss his authority and his leadership. They're looking for a way to go, oh yeah, he seems like he's got an excellent spirit, but he actually has been embezzling money. Or he actually has like, you know, four wives on the side in another city. Or they're trying to find a way to undermine his excellent spirit, and they cannot do it. How beautiful would it be if the only thing people could condemn you for or dismiss you for was your faith? But unfortunately, we give them lots of reasons before, before we're ever even able to have a conversation with them about, about essential things. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The reality is they're looking for ways to try and pull the rug out from underneath what you have to say. Don't give them any ammunition. How? By being faithful. Not just faithful to know your Bibles, not just faithful to go to church, but faithful to be like integrous in your business, faithful in, in the way that you treat your family, faithful in the way you mow your grass and the way you keep your, you know, your trash cans pulled in. Whatever. What I'm talking about is a robust life that allows no one an opportunity to dismiss you for any reason so that you can have a conversation about faith. I kind of wrote in the margins here that I want to be the kind of person who forces people, forces them to persecute me for my faith. Does that make sense? Because they can't find anything else. I'm, I'm not always that guy, but I feel like that's a worthy goal as an ambassador to not give anybody a foothold or a, or a handhold to try and, to try and undermine what, the life I'm living and the faith that I'm trying to demonstrate. Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 says, or 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The, the idea there is that if we're, if we're aiming at holiness and blamelessness, that, that in itself will stand out. Like you want to distinguish yourself? You don't have to distinguish yourself by giving a speech or with a bumper sticker. By the way, this maybe is just like a little pet peeve of mine. Bumper stickers, my friends, are not conversations. That's not dialogue. That, that's just shouting a thing into the world, and you're, you're not talking to anybody, right? And every bumper sticker, the bumper stickers you see that you don't like, that, those people aren't having a conversation with you. You're not considering what you see on the bumper stickers you don't like. We, we have to be people of, of dialogue, right? We have to be people of community, engaged with other human beings made in the image of God. Bumper stickers, t-shirts, that kind of stuff, it doesn't do it. That's just you shouting a thing into the void, and, and people treat it like you shouting into the void. It's dismissed immediately, right? This says, if we live lives that are blameless, this is uh, the, the passage here in Philippians, that if we live lives that are blameless and holy, children of God without blemish, that in the midst of a cricket and uh, twisted generation, we will naturally shine. The truth of who we are and the truth of who Christ is revealed in us will come out sim simply just by living a life of holiness, right? Putting Christ on display. So, we give... All, all kinds of reasons to people to dismiss us long before we ever get a chance to talk to them about what we believe. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 11, I love this passage, says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you, but it's prefaced with this idea that you've been given grace and that grace is meant to be your teacher. The grace of God is meant to be the great instructor in our life and it's his grace that guides us towards godliness and holiness, right? It's not a thing we do out of robotic assimilation or because somebody told us you're checking the box, illegalism, whatever. His grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age. Why? Because we've been put here to put Jesus on display. The grace of God is put on display when, when we are trained by his grace and then live a life in response to that grace. So first we see in Daniel, back to Daniel chapter 6, we see an excellent spirit. Second, we see an impeccable standing. And thirdly, uh, back to Daniel 6, look at verse, uh, at verse 10. We see a man with an unwavering system, an unwavering system. This text uh, is a little different than the way I remember it from the time I was a kid, by the way. When I, when I remember this story from Sunday school, it always, felt like, uh, it always felt like Daniel's prayer was an act of protest, right? It always felt like that was him being like, Oh, no, you didn't. You're not going to tell me not to pray. I'll show you. I, I, like, I don't know why I envisioned this this way, but it always felt like some kind of social activism, right? Like they made this law that nobody was allowed to make any prayer or petition, and then immediately Daniel's just like, you can't tell me what to do. I, you know, there is a God in heaven, and it's not you. And then he marches upstairs, and he flings open his windows, and he prays extra loud, right? And then they catch him, and they drag him off the lion's den. Well, that's not what's revealed in the text. And I don't know whether my Sunday school teacher taught it that way or if that's just the way I remember it. But, but in my recollection, it always felt like he hears they've made this law, and then he's going to show them that they can't do that to him. That isn't what's here. Look at what's here. 
It says in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. If you're a note-taking kind of person and you've got a pencil in your hand, I would invite you to underline and circle or highlight as he had done previously. The, the key to my third principle here is they are able to put him in the lion's den. They are able to trap him. They are able to get him in trouble because they found something in alignment with the law of his God, right? But what that tells us about Daniel is that he had a predictable faithfulness that even his enemies could see, right? That they were aware that a place they could get him, if they wanted to get him, was in his prayer life because the dude goes three times a day. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a meeting. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of lunch. It doesn't matter what else we're doing. This guy Daniel always goes up to his balcony and he prays toward Jerusalem and he does it morning, noon, and night. They were able to come up with a trap for him because he was, he was predictable. He had this unwavering system. When I read the text, I am, uh, I am forced to ask myself the question, like, how different would my life be if they outlawed prayer in 2022? Uh, you know, like, would that ruffle your system at all? Like, how, like how, how much of a disruption would that be for many of us? I mean... For many of us, I'm, I'm afraid to say that the outlawing of public prayer might disrupt our lives about as much as the outlawing of exercise bikes. You'd be like, well, I have one, but I don't use it all the time. It's a great place to hang towels to let them dry or whatever, you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What he's advocating for here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying like, you, don't, you shouldn't be living a life of holiness out of obligation or because you're, you feel like this sense of, if I don't do these things, I'll please God. But you've been invited You've been invited into this ambassadorship. You've been, been invited to run this race. And there is a finish line. By the way, evangelism and ambassadorship is not something we will do in eternity. Right? We're in a season of time. We're in a window of time right now. Our lives, and, and Lord willing, Jesus returns soon. But if he doesn't, our lifetime is a window of time in which we have the opportunity to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So, so don't disregard the joy of running that race. But to run that race, it takes strategic planning, right? It takes an unwavering system to go, how am I going to be faithful? What am I going to do when things are hard? What am I going to do when I face opposition? What am I going to do when, uh, when I come up against people that disagree with me? or whatever? Like, we have to think it through. And I, I love the fact that Daniel, his prayer is not, uh, it's not rebellion. It's habit. It's evidence of an ongoing relationship with God. Is there, is there evidence of an ongoing relationship with God in your life that other people can see? Is there evidence of an ongoing relationship with God that other people can see? And, and if you're trying to think about it and you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I drive to church so my neighbors see me get up early in the morning. That's, that's good. I would say the best evidence of an ongoing relationship with God is the fruit of the Spirit. Put that stuff on display, right? Because again, well, let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Let's go back to it for a second. The fruit of the Spirit, for what it's worth, is not for you. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the fruit of the Spirit is not, like, we don't produce love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control for our own consumption. Like, oh, I'm so joyful, and it feels great to be joyful. Oh, I'm so filled with peace, and isn't it nice to be a peaceful guy? No, no, no. 
none of the fruit of the Spirit make any sense in an isolation booth, right? You put a, you put a Christian in, a, in an isolated room and you lock the door. It doesn't matter how much fruit's being produced in there. It's worthless, right? All of that fruit that's produced by the Spirit of God is produced in you for the consumption of others. It's all meant to feed your neighbors, right? It's not, it's not so that you can feel better about how gentle and kind you are. It's about, it's about feeding the people around you, right? So when we think about having this demonstrable faith, or when we think about this enduring system where like, peop, it's predictable, people go, yeah, if we're going to pin something on Daniel, this is a guy who's committed to talking to his God every day. Like I love the fact that that's demonstrable. There's a demonstrable faith upon which he sort of builds his prophetic engagement. So, sorry, moving quick, and I got a little distracted. I did have a quote here by Richard Baxter talking about, um, talking about persecution. It's a good quote. He says, Be more concerned that you deserve persecution than that you be delivered from it. Deserving it is evidence of your faithfulness to God. That's a cool quote, right? Because I do think a lot of times we're like, Oh, man, I don't want to deal with the... Like, it's hard. it's hard to be an ambassador in a world that doesn't love Jesus. But what he's saying is like, no, that, that's actually, you're in the right spot. If you're facing that, that's good. You want to be the kind of person who's going to face it, right? Don't worry so much about being delivered from it. Okay, I got one last point here tonight. Back to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is a man of an excellent spirit. He's a man with impeccable standing. He's a man with an unwavering system. And then lastly, uh, my, my final point is, is affectionate solidarity. I know those are weird words, but I was just trying to do the first word with a vowel and the second word with an S. It's like... It's like radical alliteration, you guys. I'm like on the I'm on the cutting edge of alliteration. So anyway, thanks for laughing. A couple of you laughed at that. What is that? An English joke? Is that what that was? Like a, like a it's fine. I appreciate you guys laughing. The last thing I want you to see here is the affection. We talked last night. No, we talked uh, two nights ago. Three nights ago, about Daniel and his compassion for. Um, his compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that when he interprets the dream. And he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, oh man, I wish this was for your enemies. I wish I, wish I didn't have to deliver this message to you. And, and at that time, I talked about the way in which our love for people, even when they deserve punishment, makes a difference. This is the byproduct of that. It's the other side of that same coin. Look at what we see in, in Daniel. Um, look with me, if you will, at Daniel chapter 14. The king, this is King Darius, the king of the Medes and the Persians, the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Okay, this is the king, this is the king of the modern world. This is a guy who's got a lot of things on his plate, right? This is a guy who's got 120 satraps over all of these provinces, and he's laboring day and night to deliver one guy. It's one guy. It's not going to be that big of a deal. And he's not, even a, he's not even a Mede or a Persian. He's not even a Babylonian. He's like a, he's like a guy from Judah. He's like a slave. He's laboring. I want you to just look at the heart of Darius towards Daniel. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said, No, o king, it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king established can be changed. You don't have the ability to find a loophole in this law. You sign the law, he's got to be punished. And Darius knew that was true. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Daniel, uh, Darius is even able and capable of recognizing this is not his God. Right? He doesn't say, Hey, May God deliver you. He says, may your God, who you serve, 
do something, right? So is that, is that beautiful faith? Here we, do we have Darius lining up for circumcision? No, right? That's not this, not yet. But what we do have is Darius going, your God has power, and I have seen your God on display in you, and I love you, and so I'm hoping that your God will do something for you. This is a prayer by a pagan person to a God he does not affirm. It's awesome. This is a byproduct of the influence of a faithful ambassador. He says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and, and sleep fled from him. He didn't sleep. He didn't get any work done. He was fretting all night. For one guy. I just want you to see the affection that Darius feels for Daniel and how kind of unbelievable that is. How crazy it is that the king of the Medes and the Persians cares about this exile the way he does. It says, then at break of day, verse 19, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from these lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel, even in that moment, I love the fact that he blesses the king. So I'm reminded there of even just like when, the first time Jacob stands before Pharaoh uh, in Genesis 47. Uh, and and he now here's this old man, Jacob. He's like 117 or something. And he stands before Pharaoh and it says that, that Jacob blesses the Pharaoh twice. And I'm like, that's kind of cool, you know, sort of interesting, like being introduced to the king of the known world at the time. Daniel starts by saying, long live the king. And then he says, my God has delivered me. He shut the mouths of the lions, right? And he says, because I was blameless before him, and I'm blameless before you. Like, I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong. I've been faithful to you. So he reaffirms his faithfulness to the pagan king. This could have been an opportunity to gloat. It could have been an opportunity to swagger. It could have been an opportunity to do all of those things. And instead, he just reaffirms the affection between them and the power of God. What I want you to see in this fourth point tonight is that Darius loved Daniel and didn't know God yet. Not really. He knew of him, and he's on his way. But how cool would it be if the followers of Jesus could live in this world in such a way that even the people who don't yet acknowledge our God loved us. I ache for it. I ache for it. I know it's weird to be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient, and I get that there's an oddity to that, but I think that oddity is magnetic. And I long for our neighbors, the people who, who live in the, the houses across the street from us, or the people that we see at the Mexican restaurants we love, or what, whatever it is you do and wherever you go, what, shouldn't we be endearing their hearts to us as, as a pathway to endearing their hearts to Christ. It's not just being different. It's loving others and being loved by them. Favor with God and man. I was reminded of that in Acts, that the church there is growing in favor with God and man, right? There's something they're doing there that isn't just about the relationship with God. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, uh, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I, uh, I got a call from my wife at work several years ago. We were, I was living in Long Beach, and 
my wife goes, you got to come home. The kids are doing something weird, you know, and I was like, uh, okay, what's that mean, you know, and she goes, just come home, we'll deal with it, you know, so I come home, and my daughter and son, my younger two, Lily and Will, had been playing in the backyard. My wife was at the kitchen sink, and she's uh, cleaning dishes or doing something, and she looks out through the window, and my daughter, Lily, who's uh, like a year and a half older than William, uh, she had gotten our, f- we have one of those life application NIV Bibles. It's like 450 pounds. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a big, thick book. She grabbed the, uh, the big family Bible and she was chasing Will around in the backyard in a circle. And she's chasing him around the yard and she's going, uh, she, when she catches up to him, she hits him with the Bible and she goes, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. And my wife's like, ah! so she goes outside and she like gets between them and she's like, what are you doing? Like, what is this game you're playing? It's awful. Like, why would you ever tell your little brother he's going to go to hell? That's terrible. Never say that to anybody. Secondly, why would you hit someone with the Bible? That's so awful. Never hit people with stuff, anything, but not the Bible. And my kids, she says, my kids both look at her like, we, they can't understand why she's so upset. Like, they just, it just doesn't compute. And so my daughter looks at my wife and she's like, Mommy, we were just playing Mean Jesus. And my wife's like, that's not a game, right? That's not a thing. There's no such person as mean Jesus, right? No. And that's when she called me, right? So I had to come home and sit with my kids and be like, no hitting, no using the Bible, no damning people, no mean Jesus, whatever. We're not doing any of this. And uh, so we worked it all out, you know, it's fine. But on reflection, like a couple days after this, I was thinking about how, and I had recently moved to Long Beach, so I'd been living here at Hume, which is a pretty isolated, you know, Christian community, and moving into Long Beach and seeing how often, like, you know, you can be at the AT&T store trying to get a new phone, and I can be talking to the guy behind the counter and having a great conversation about soccer or baseball or video games or music or whatever, and then at some point, it always kind of gets to that place where they're like, what do you do for a living? And, and I say, oh, I'm a pastor, and there's like a, there's like a noticeable like the temperature in the room changes. It's almost like, they're, like there's a glassiness that comes over their eyes. And there's a pivot. And it, ha- it was happening to me a lot at the time. And I was trying to get a sense of what that is. Like why is it that I can be talking to someone and having an awesome conversation and then when they hear what I do, they kind of just want to be done with me. And uh, I realized that for most of the people in our neighborhoods, when they think about Christians, you know what they picture? They picture mean Jesus. They picture pastors being people that are going to chase them around with a big Bible, and if they can catch them, they're going to hit them and tell them they're going to hell. Like that's a, that's a pretty common picture for what it is Christians are all about. Mean Jesus is what they imagine when they imagine what it is we do on Sundays, like preparing for Mean Jesus. And the weirdest part about that, the most frustrating part is, you guys, Mean Jesus isn't in here, right? You, you can go top to back, and you can, uh, for sure, I know, he turned over some tables in the temple, but his turning over the tables was zealousness for the glory of God and rejecting that the house of God be a place of exchange. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. What he's focused on there is you just need to open up your hands and receive the gifts of God. This isn't a place to buy and sell. There's nothing to exchange here. There's nothing to trade. It's a place for the, for the reception of gifts, right? So even when he turns over the tables, it's not mean Jesus, not really. He's not here. So why do my neighbors, why does the guy at the AT&T store picture mean Jesus when he hears I'm a Christian? It's not because mean Jesus is revealed in the pages of the Bible. It's because we've done that. We've painted that picture. We've painted the picture of mean Jesus, and the whole world sees it. We've marred his image. We've marred his image. And the great news about, well, I don't know, did you guys see the, uh, this is totally a side note, but did you see the news story a couple of years ago about the, 
the uh, elderly woman in France who w- offered her services to restore one of the ancient paintings in her church. Did you see that? I wish I should have brought it. But it's like this beautiful old painting of Jesus, and, she, and it needed to be restored. And she's like, I think I can do it. And so, and so they let her, and when she's done, it doesn't even look like a human being. It's just like a, like a blobby face with like a kind of a smiley face on it. It looks kind of like a potato. It's awful. She had good intentions, but what she did there is she, she distorted the image of Christ, right? The great news is that's not permanent. That marring of the image of Christ is not something that cannot be undone. It can be undone. We can restore the image of Christ, but what that takes is what we've talked about tonight. What it takes is being women and men with an excellent spirit, a different spirit. Being people of impeccable standing, right? For the only thing they can accuse us of is faithfulness. Being people with an unwavering system, a predictability in the way in which we follow Christ that the world can see. And being people of affectionate solidarity who not only love God, but follow, follow the instruction of Christ to love God and love others, and in doing so, meet the requirements of the entirety of the law, Right? Love God, love other people, and everything takes care of itself, Jesus says. Daniel wasn't trying to make a statement. He was just living for God, and his sphere was changed. How will the world change because of us? That's our question, and we looked at all this stuff. We went six chapters. I know I didn't touch the prophetic sections. I encourage you to read those. It's not that they aren't, uh, they aren't interesting. They are interesting, but, but for our sake this week, the ambassadorship section of this, I think, is most easily seen in these narrative portions. I hope this week you've had the opportunity to think through what it looks like to live in a place that maybe doesn't hold the same values you do and to figure out what it's going to look like to endear them to, to both to Christ and to yourself for the sake of repairing the marred image of Jesus in our culture. So that's at least what I'm trying to do, and I invite you to join me in that. So let me pray, and we'll be done for tonight. God. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, for the exciting stories in the first six chapters of Daniel and the ways in which they are inspirational to us, the ways in which they're convicting and challenging, the ways in which we, um, we see both things to emulate, and then we also have to do the work of discerning and being led by your Spirit, abiding in you for the sake of understanding how, how it correlates because we're not exiles and this isn't Babylon and there's no lion's dens or whatever. Like we, we have to figure out how to in culture, these principles into California or into Idaho or wherever we're living, God, will you, will you give us your wisdom? Will you guide us by the power of your spirit? Will you give us a clear view of the Lord Jesus and his heart for us and his heart for our neighbors? Will you allow grace to be our teacher? Will you allow grace to teach us to renounce ungodliness and to live holy lives as we await the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks, y'all.